Voila! In view, a humble vaudevillian veteran, cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. This visage, no mere veneer of vanity, is a vestige of the Vox Populi, now vacant, vanished. However, this valorous visitation of a bygone vexation stands vivified and has vowed to vanquish these venal and virulent vermin, vanguarding vice and vouchsafing the violently vicious and voracious violation of volition. The only verdict is vengeance, a vendetta held as a votive not in vain, for the value and veracity of such shall one day vindicate the vigilant and the virtuous. <laughs> Verily, this vicious soise of verbiage veers most verbose, so let me simply add that it's my very good honor to meet you, and you may call me V. Good Trash Genre Cast. Listen to me! You look like a... What? Radioactive tampon. I wasn't supposed to... I think I got a banana with a use infection. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. There were five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. I got, I got shorts, every fucking color. I got designer t-shirts. I do. I ordered your corsage. It's an orchid. It was like twelve dollars. Is that how you say hello? Where are you coming from? Oh my god. Oh my god. I can't believe I shot that. Where are you? Bill. Huh? I don't think we're gonna be able to stitch this. Uh, that's still tender. You think you might pull through? If it means anything now, I am so sorry. It's just instinctive. Here's my bad. I was never a very good practical joker. So do you have any regrets? <laughs> Garfield, maybe. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and we talk about the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. And for some reason, we've um, been talking about doing the film Spring Breakers for a long, long time. Spring Break. Which is a story about one young, nerdy person as he makes his way into Padre Island and finally connects with the girl of his dreams. But we'll get in that spoiler territory. It's the way, way back. <laughs> we'll get to that later uh, when we get into our spoiler section of the film. But before that, we need to do some introductions of the disembodied voices playing through your generic multimedia devices. To my left, sir, if you would. I am Arthur Gordon. And truth be told, I'm not from this planet and I'm about stacking change, y'all. Stacking change. That's it. Money. I'm about making money. <laughs> this is a dream, y'all. This is the American dream. That's it. I did it. <laughs> All entirely accurate as your wife shakes her head. Across the table, if you would, sir. My name is Dalton Stewart, and this is Poetry in Motion, y'all. This is what life is about. Big booties and bikinis, y'all. <laughs> the alien quotes continue. And the lady to my left, if you would, ma'am. My name is Alexander Bohannon, and I'm starting to think that this is the most spiritual place I've ever been. <laughs> we don't usually do voices. This is fun. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was very solid. Uh, my name is Dustin Sells, and I do have shorts 
every color. And I, <laughs> and I am very, very Look glad. at all his shit. <laughs> <laughs> I got Scarface on repeat. Uh, and so uh, glad, glad to be talking about the film Spring Breakers again. Dear listener, this is a review, not a review show, not a review show at all. It's an analysis show, and that means there will be spoilers. But we will give you a brief hiatus from Spoilerage in which we give a quick synopsis and our quick thumbs up and thumbs down reviews. Then we get down to brass tacks, what we're about as a show. So now you have been warned uh, that the spoilers will be coming and when they shall be coming. But let's begin with that quick synopsis from Voice the Cinema, Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir. Four college girls hold up a restaurant in order to fund their spring break vacation. While partying, drinking, caking drugs, they are arrested only to be bailed out by a drugs and arms dealer. Spring break. To be fair, it was only three girls, but you know. Nah, man, he's a rapper. He is a rapper. He is. He's from another planet, y'all. <clears throat> okay. He's done about every illegal thing under the sun. <laughs> he has. He has. Well, there you go, dear listener. Now you know something of what's going on, but I got to say, the story is not what that movie's about at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely an aesthetic thing, but let's talk about our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews and reactions to the film just as quality uh, regards us. I begin with you, Miss Alexander Bohannon. What say you? Because you've never seen I know all three of us have seen this yeah, before. Yeah, you're Oh, you guy. Oh, I didn't know you guys at all. Yeah, we've all seen this before. Oh, I saw it in theaters. Same. I I liked it. I honestly, um, I would put it in a slightly Mulholland Drive-ish camp of like, I need to watch it and enjoy it in its entirety to fully enjoy it because I have to say, um, there's, almost, there's only so much plotless uh, TNA I can stand <laughs> in. A movie, um, so many crotch shots that don't really have an explanation. Um, lots of, like, you know, just a lot of male gaze um, that I will talk about being justified in my analysis that this male gaze is justified, but it's still, I didn't know where they were going with it. And I was like, oh my God, we really have to suffer through more of this uh, just casual objectification, but okay. Um so that I did find in terms of like composition, the colors and the shots. Oh, it's beautiful. It's just mm-hmm. wonderful. The, Absolutely. M- that moped scene. Like, God, that's just, it felt like I was watching a movie through these beautiful Instagram filters or something. Just like <laughs> the colors were so sharp and crisp and it was just perfectly composed. Like someone was just doing, I mean, like an art like a piece of art. Um, and of course, uh, Franco's performance is the standout performance of this film. I couldn't think of anyone else who could have played this role better. Really? Uh, he just, he nailed it and he was 100% believable in, in his role. Um, I mean, the plot is non-existent till you get to that very obvious second act, which, um, you know, that can be here and are there, but I haven't watched much other Corinne, so I couldn't tell you if this is just the standard thing. But it seems like he has other films worthy of being checked out. I found it was wonderful using all these ex-Disney channel and other um, youth channel actresses. And I thought they did really well as as well. They kind of act as this interesting um a- amorphous one unit um i just don't think of them as individual people i mean faith is obviously you know with the name it's very and the character traits very stand out but overall i i really like this so i would say that this is um for uh (laughs) 
four beers being pull, poured into mouths of open babes in a very sexual position out of five. It's a very, very specific rating system. Right. I like that very much. Yeah. Thank you, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you in terms of review? I find this to be a very curious oddity, and I, I would say it's a very hypnotizing and mesmerizing film. Uh, the visual aesthetic, the colors, as Alex has already mentioned, are just it's beautiful and it's it's engaging and it's it catches your eye and it just keeps you going throughout. And it's a nice callback, I think, to some eighty stuff. And admittedly, from Corinne to Michael Mann's work with Miami Vice, and is just a very beautiful looking uh, film. Um, I think Franco is wonderful most of the time. Uh, he lays it on a bit thick. Uh, at to- uh, at times, uh, I think the, the character certainly calls for it, uh, but it, it it gets hard to watch at times the the way he he plays alien, and so it, it's it's a bit troublesome. Um, I know uh, the, the the main girls are all fine; uh, they do well enough uh, in the movie to get the point across. I I don't I hate to say the word like watching this movie, but it's a interesting event film to watch, and I think it's it's engaging and it's engrossing. Um, it's uncomfortable and it's gut wrenching at times and it's awkward, but it's, I think there's something there and I think Corinne's trying to say something. I think he does it well. It's kind Uh, of experiential that way. Yeah. Kind of like how, that's why I said about Mulholland Drive being an experience. Like you have to watch it to have watched it and like it. Right. Yeah. That's kind of. Yeah. In that. Kind of like spring break, you know? It's an experience. (laughs) Oh my. A spiritual one at that. This is the most spiritual place I've ever been. Um, but I think I, I can't recommend this enough. I think, especially for people who listen to this show, I think they'd get something out of it. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, like a definite caveat on my review and recommendation to, because uh, if you go, because I watch this on Amazon Prime, and if you go into the reviews, I think that there is. I've never seen a movie that has such polarized review sections that are either you loved it, like a, a, at a four or five star rating, or you hated it. And most of the reviews were one star, saying this is trash, this is awful, don't watch this. This is why would anyone degrade themselves and watch this? This film? movie is not for everybody. This is for people who watched. I- professional film watchers need only apply right pretty much or if you're just kind of open to things as an artistic experience then yeah but like it's yeah. it's not for casual film goers for no sure. this movie is on the shelf by shank ruth and terrence malick not 21 jump street and american pie uh it, it is a mesmerizing film though and I, I i can't take my eyes off it i give it 16 and a half copies of scarface on repeat out of 19.79 copies of scarface on repeat scarface on repeat there you go you get all the props, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Well done, sir. Thank you very much for that review. Mr. Dalton, sir, what do you say in terms of review? I mean, Arthur really, I think, kind of covered it pretty well. Uh, this movie is bonkers. I, I say a lot that um, certain films hate you and want you to be unhappy. I don't think Spring Breakers hates you, but no. it definitely wants to assault you. Mm-hmm. It wants A sexual to, assault. It wants, to visually, <laughs> it wants to visually and auditorily assault you. And I think the first scene of this movie is fucking brilliant mm-hmm. because they shoot a party scene like you would shoot a horror scene, like a scene of tension and suspense and murder. That's how they shoot that beach party. Uh, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. And the thing about dubstep is it's very loud and caustic and, and assaultive. Uh, it's super dancey and party, but also like it's just like, <laughs> it's just very mean it can be and then that scene it works perfectly because it's just like if you didn't know what you were getting into now is your opportunity to leave 
Um, and I think that's, I, I really think that's one of the best scenes of the movie. Cause I think that scene just, and a very much a cinema verite style just kind of captures what this, cause I, that was not an organized party. They probably just found some kids on the beach. Cause there was a lot of people yeah. like more than they could have reasonably played, paid for extra work because they didn't have a huge budget to make this. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious whether or not they put that party together or they just let it happen. Um, but it it's shot as though we have invaded a beach party and we're just watching it as it unfolds and it is crazy and you either think that looks awesome or that is horrifying uh, and there is no in between I think um, and, and I think yeah that's one of the things I love about this movie is how it starts and honestly this I've only seen it twice the the ones I saw in theaters and the ones watching it for the show I got really bored several times this time. Um, which did not happen for me when I was in theaters, and part of that might just be the home theater experience. It's, it's easier to become disengaged from a film, I think, watching it uh, in your home. Um, but also knowing where the film was going and knowing, like, oh, this, there's a better part coming after this. I think a lot of, there was a lot of that. Um, but I really love the scene um, where they the, the, we... The, there's a great shot of... Um, Harmony Corinne's wife, uh, Rachel, whose character name I can't remember... Um, circling the chicken joint in the El Camino, and you see the robbery happen. Oh, that's such a great scene. And then when you actually see inside of that and see how violent it was, it's really it's it's a great shot the first time, and then you actually see the robbery. And I think oh, that's really I love great. that. Like, oh man, the film assaults you and then backs off, and then just becomes more and more and more and more and more and more assaultive as it goes on. So, uh, experience is a great word. I mean, it's it's definitely not the narrative is secondary here entirely it is all about the experience it's not my favorite film by a long shot but i definitely think it's valuable and i think it's very interesting i would give it six and a half pistol blowjobs out of a possible 10 oh that was that was golden (laughs) very well done sir um what i would want to say in terms of reviews i like the movie very very much and what i like it what I like so much about it, I guess, is what it actually is. I have a quote from Gart, Galt, rather, and Galtar and Kay Schoonover uh, in their book Global Art Cinema, and it says this about art cinema. In common usage, art cinema describes feature-length narrative films at the margins of mainstream cinema, located somewhere between fully experimental films and overtly commercial products. Typically, but not necessary, features include foreign production, overt engagement of the aesthetic, unrestrained formalism, and a mode of narration that is pleasurable but loosened from classical structures and distanced from its representation. By classical standards, the art film may be seen as too slow or excessive in its visual style, use of color, or characterization. That Dang. about covers it, yeah. And that's the movie, and that I mean, that, that's why I like this movie. It is it is, is really a high mark in what, what we call sort of the art cinema. It's not avant-garde film, it's not experimental film, it's not, you know, stuff that's going to be showing at the, you know, uh, New York Museum of Modern the MoMA, Art. MoMA, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not going to get a MoMA feature, but it is, it is top-end uh, artistic production in, in terms of sort of the narrative slash Hollywood slash commercial system. Well, and much like uh, Drive, I think, it, which would be an interesting companion with it, it's very much an art film, but at the same time could still very reasonably considered a trash or genre film mm-hmm. uh, because this movie is trashy in yeah. the most beautiful way. In crazy ways, yeah. Uh, it, much like Drive is very much a genre film. Well, it's art in sort of the Dada sense, right? You know, mm-hmm. when Marcel Duchamp makes a urinal, turns it upside down, puts it on a post and says... And Signs fountain. It. Yeah, and yeah. signs it with not even his own name, right? Which, uh, those of you who might notice, is our Twitter avatar. 
Right. And, and I mean, that is precisely what this film is. And then that's sort of that anti-art art, art mm-hmm. and not just so much anything goes art, but sort of questioning sort of the categories uh, that make art art. And this film does that very, very well. It uses, you know, Selena Gomez, who's mm-hmm. somewhat famous, James Franco, who's also somewhat famous, um, but uses them sort of contrary in sort of contradictory ways to their personas. Especially and, Vanessa Hudgens. I mean, yes. really, especially her playing one of the two sociopaths of the Correct. four. Correct. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, just the, the dubstep, uh, the use of color, the use of lighting, the, the uh, sort of eschewing traditional narrative, all of that sort of stuff makes this film so much fun. You know, as, as a guy, you know, who watches a lot of, you know, sort of mainstream commercial cinema, and a guy who watches a lot of avant-garde cinema, and I find sometimes both sides of the, the, that spectrum to be tedious, you know, either because it's just the same thing, oh, wait, the superhero is going to smash somebody's face, or, okay, it flickers a bunch, I don't understand it. You know, with the avant-garde thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, get, I get it. The horse looks sad. <laughs> to, 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 to occasionally be somewhere there in the middle yeah. is, is, is extraordinarily pleasurable mm-hmm. for me. And so um, I like this movie a lot. And so what I would probably give it is 17 and three quarters gratuitous breasts out of a possible 18. And uh, a quarter breasts. There's, I'm it's, like a, right. it's like a quarter pounder. Uh, okay. <laughs> with cheese. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were pretty... <laughs> They were pretty um, equal with. There were some members of the itty bitty titty committee. I understand. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean it wasn't just like um, gr- sh- overly gratuitous. Like, you know. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much. Equal for that, representation. Alex. Well, dear listener, now I think you know our biases and where we're coming from, but this is not what we're here to do. We're here to bring analysis. And I got a feeling we're going to drop the mic with the analysis today. So I'm very, very excited to hear that from all of our dear co-hosts. I begin with you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you? Uh, Now, I I would hardly um, try to assume what Harmony Corinne intended by any of this. And again, we always talk about author's intent be damned. It doesn't really matter, and it's not important. So I'm just going to present a scenario for you, and we'll see where we go with it, okay? So early in the film, uh, Rachel Corinne, who, again, whose character name I cannot remember, Britt, Cootie, Candy, Cottie. Cottie is uh, Cootie, (laughs) Baby Spice, (laughs) Gucci, Gucci Mane, Um, whatever. Um, So Sporty Spice uh, has gone off to party with these guys by herself. If you want to be my And the rest of the girls are in a pool talking about how great spring break is. Meanwhile, she is getting blackout drunk. Uh, And it kind of seems like the film might be going somewhere icky for a second. And it doesn't. Uh, She gets to continue to have the power in that sequence, in that room with those men. The only girl there, as far as we see. Um, You know, flirting and, and, you know, being somewhat sexual but not ever going all the way. Um and again, it seems like it might go somewhere icky, and it never does. And it never becomes a feeling of threatening. It's just showing this party. The only time men are ever a threat in this film, they're black. And that's a big fucking problem. Correct. The first time men become scary in this film is when Alien bails them out of jail and takes them to the pool hall. And Alien is the only white guy there. There's a, a fairly light-skinned guy with dreads. 
uh, and everyone else is very dark. But the first time black people show up is the first time the girls get scared, especially Selena Gomez, and that's when she leaves. And then the film culminates in two white women storming the beaches of a black man's house and killing all of his friends, and then him. Correct. Yeah. That's just what happens in the movie. I didn't... I'm not making any of that up. I'm not passing a judgment on what Harmony Corinne was doing there. I'm just saying that is what happens in the movie, and that's a problem. Because what happens is all these white people go to colonize St. Petersburg, Florida, and then become aghast at the native wildlife, if you will, or the oh native the native population. This is true. <laughs> and then what do they do after they get over their fear of the natives? They kill all of them. <laughs> And then they take over St. Petersburg. They colonize, <laughs> these spring breakers colonize St. Petersburg, Florida, which is what happens every year in Florida during spring break. Which is an interesting counterpoint to the lecture. I'm sure you're going to go there. I, I was going to let Alex mention it because I had actually forgotten about it, to be perfectly honest. Um, Alex, you want to go ahead and bring that up real quick? Yeah, it just at the beginning of this movie, I'm glad I had the subtitles because they were too busy drawing dicks to pay attention to the lecture. <laughs> but, um, which is, they were, it's just, yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, but the fact that I got to hear, yes, Dalton is uh, doing a live action rendition of of this. Um, a lot of bad his, things happen to my microphone, microphone regularly. Uh, sorry, you might want to clean that later. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> so just listening to this man's lecture about MLK and racial tensions in America, and I'm like, I wonder if race is going to be a factor in this movie. And then it is. And then it is. But I, it's interesting you say it. Like, that's a really great perspective. I didn't even take my thoughts on race that far, but I was just thinking, it's really interesting considering all the dangerous situations they were in with all these white guys, and it's okay because they're white, mm-hmm. and they're white, and everyone's having a great time. But they go to a pool hall, which, mm-hmm. I mean, it it could have... I've been to a pool hall before, and, and just being in a pool hall doesn't mean you're, like, in a scary situation or anything. But that's, like... No one's doing drugs. No one's drinking gratuitously. They literally just... I, I go to a pool hall once a week, pool. literally. They were playing pool, yeah. and they were... And it's, it's sad. There's a journal article called... Um, that is reminded here. Um, I read this journal article. It's called driving while black. Well, they were just playing pool while black. And the premise of the article is like, if you're driving while black, you have a higher incidence of being pulled over. That's just, mm-hmm. that makes sense. A sad reality. Statistical but fact. Statistically fact, factual. But the fact that they were just, they were playing pool while black, that automatically makes it scary. And that scene. <laughs> and the, and the reason that I bring this up, and the reason that I think it was intentional is because that scene is shot in a very, very off-putting manner. The camera angles are all very low, which makes all of the men taller. Uh, it's It kind of keeps the, the females' faces in frame where they normally would be, but the camera's cocked back just a little bit, so everybody behind them is much taller than they are. So I think it's on purpose, and I don't know why. There's two explanations. One, Harmony Corinne is a racist. Um, and he's made... Uh, much has been made of him... Valid ma- and possible. Much has been made of him essentially making fun of poor people in Gummo. Um, I've never seen Gummo, so I can't speak to that. But I just know that that's a thing people say. Um, so that's part one. Part two is he knows white Americans are racist. 
and he yes. wants to say something about that. I don't really care what he I wants think to say. that's the more likely selection. But the problem is it doesn't work within the context of the film, and the reason is the way that scene is shot, we are supposed to be scared. The, the, the scene is shot in a very off-putting and intimidating manner. It is yours meant to be as uncomfortable as Selena Gomez is in that scene. And if he was trying to say something, she w- everyone would have freaked out, and the audience would have been like, what's the big deal? Why is she freaking out? The problem is we are as afraid as she is. Um, and, and to me, that's why the scene plays racist. Um, so while I think he probably was trying to do that, the way it comes across is that's the way the scene feels in that moment. Um now I could be wrong about that. You know, I, I I could be wrong and just assuming well because the scene plays that way, that's the audience the way the audience is supposed to feel. But I remember sitting in the theater watching this and being like, This is not okay. Like I had a big problem with that scene the first time I saw this movie and I was like I left the theater and said, This movie has something to say about race and I don't know what it is and I don't know if it meant to. But it definitely said something, and I don't know what that is. And to be honest with you, I still don't know what that is. Um, all I know is that the only time the white women are in danger in this movie, it's because of a black man. And that's a problem. Totally agreed. I think you're um, problematizing the film in excellent ways. Thank you yeah, very much. that's straight up. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what say you in terms of analysis? Okay, uh, preface, I'm going to talk about sexual terms and i'm sorry i mean the movie is very sexual so if it's you gonna were, get graphic yeah so if you were okay with watching the movie you'll be super okay listening to me talk about this stuff but just as a kind of a heads up let's talk about sex i'm gonna do a fro- uh, more of a freudian reading of this uh yes i uh, exciting Uh, Women must have a phallus in order to actually have power in their own lives, especially over men. Boom. Well done. I'm already excited. (laughs) Well done. She's done. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I mean, the rest of it is supporting my thesis, but... Go on. Drop the mic. You're doing great. I found it interesting that one of the girls said, I'll teach you to be like us and you'll have all the money and all the power. And that's um, the one of the three evil hags talking to Faith. Um... Once they got the money they desired, it didn't actually give them any power they wanted. Remember, they got the money by uh, robbing the restaurant. Um, They grab and go. They got the money. And then they go on spring break. And what happened over spring break, um, which is basically I'm going to recount why just getting this money doesn't equal power. This power they got was not true power, but it was only... It only gave them the feeling of empowerment. They were still trapped by the bars of the male gaze. The only room uh, for them to act in spring break after they got this money, which was supposed to give them power, was a way that encourages this, a way that is pornographic in the style of these parties. This goes into the use of alcohol, surprisingly, and bottles as a Freudian symbol. during all of the parties, that D. girls were deep-throating the bottles at the request of the men egging them on. Correct. They, Besides all the popsicle antics, because popsicles have always kind of had this connotation of sexuality, um, but I'm specifically talking about the alcohol use. Um, there were 
girls on the ground I cited in my as my star review. Um, they were directly under men, and it was almost like the whole peeing fetish because they were like tipping the liquor bottles at their crotch, and it was all over their faces and in their mouths. Um, there were girls on the ground that were being poured liquor on them, sometimes topless. Uh, all of these elements are clear homages to the money shot and pornography. Uh, there was girl on g- girl action done in the middle of the rule in middle of the room in like a cluster of people yep. um, simulating that kind of male fetishization where there's lots of room for the guy to get involved and it's all super sexy and we're like oh let's let's join in and then um, in the one scene that you were talking about earlier about the girl going away and it felt super Cotty. rapey Cotty yeah. yes Rachel the one that felt super rapey that actually wasn't. Um, I would propose that it was because it, I think it was more like an orgy. There was a pouring of alcohol by a number of different guys on her, kind of like a bukkake, mm-hmm. yeah. with them quote-unquote ejaculating onto her. Um, and so I found that was a very interesting demonstration of how they got this money. It didn't give them the power they want. So... Uh, the three girls realized that the money didn't give them the power they wanted because they got disenfranchised pretty easily. They were shut down by the police and they got hauled off to jail. Um, move, holy so the only way to get for the women in these in these situations to get power um, in these male dominated societies is to have to have a gun, which is the closest thing for them to wield the power, the closest thing to replace real phallus. Citing oh, the blowjob scene, and it does replace a phallus. Yes, the I didn't realize that was going to go that long and for that long. Uh, mm-hmm. What I'm talking about is James Franco is held at gunpoint by the two most hardcore girls, um, and they stick, they take all of his guns away, and they're like, "Well, we've got the power now." And they start sticking the gun in his mouth, and he's like, "That's loaded." But then he starts using it in a in a rather sexual nature, giving it... He performs um, fellatio on the gun. Yes, thank you, yeah. Yes, he performs fellatio. Oh, he fellates it. A lot. Two different, very loaded guns with silencers on them. So, otherwise, without the guns, women may have the money, but as discussed earlier, the money doesn't do it. Women must have a substitute phallus in order to have the power. Um, And that's... And earlier in my review, I said that the male gaze, all the crotch shots, the gratuitous TNA, the gratuitousness was needed because it was a, a larger commentary on why, like, what steps does it, what are the steps needed for a woman to actually have power in a male-dominated society? Well, it's it's very clear that what I feel like Corinne is saying is that women have to have the closest thing to a um, the, they have to have something that could be like a phallus, something that could be wielded as a weapon. Violence. Violence. Um, and the fact that these, all these men have it by default and the, and the women in this movie are constantly objectified and even their illusions of power are only that illusions. And they go mm-hmm. away as soon as they trade in that lifestyle, as soon as they shoot the bad guy and leave the, and leave the mansion in his really nice looking car. I mean, they're just dis- immediately disempowered again. They don't have power anymore. If they truce, truly choose to give up that lifestyle, we'll find that out in spring breakers too, electric boogaloo for sure. So that, those are my thoughts on how uh, Freudian this film can be at times. Shazam. 
Miss Alexander Bohannon, well done. I appreciate that very much. Uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, your work is cut out for you, sir. Bring your analysis. 32 years ago, Brian De Palma deconstructed the American dream with his crime epic Scarface. In 2012, Harmony Corinne continued the deconstruction, uh, calling into question the ideology of fledgling 20-year-olds across America. It is a tale as old as time, a young girl, hoping to avoid responsibility. Is it also a song as old as rhyme? Beauty and the Beast. A young girl, hoping to avoid responsibility and being possessed by her id's natural curiosity, travels to a bizarre land of wonder. It is here that she discovers that what she left behind isn't all that bad, and the land that she once thought marvelous is really quite terrible uh, when it manages to make sense. I think both Scarface and Spring Breakers can be looked at in dialogue with Alice in Wonderland. Scarface's dialogue is a little more simplistic, uh, mostly in character and plotting. However, Spring Breakers works in another way. Carol was known for playing with language, and that is certainly at work in Alice. It is also a tool that Corinne pulls out of his toolbox as he constantly toys with the grammar of film in Spring Breakers, uh, deconstructing not only the American dream as an ideal, but also film's portrayal of that dream. In 1968, Christian Metz published his work, Film Language as Semiotics of the Cinema, it was an attempt by Metz to apply structural linguistics to the medium of film. Uh, within the book, there's a particular discussion regarding the grammar of film. Now, hopefully, you can stay away for this next part uh, because I need to introduce and define some terms. Metz presents us with eight types of autonomous sequence that he discusses. The first is the autonomous shot, a continuous shot that represents a full segment of the film. One may compare this to a paragraph comprised of an entire sentence. In a film, we would recognize this as an entire scene made up of a single take or a long shot. The non-chronological syntagma, or parallel montage, is a series of shots edited together with no precise relationship assigned by the film. This may take on a symbolic aspect and show scenes portraying opposites. Metz mentions a juxtapositioning the rich with the poor to represent an economic conflict. The non-chronological syntagma, the bracket syntagma, is a brief series of scenes that represent occurrences that the film presents as a theme or topic. Uh, Metz presents the theme of modern love, which would be expounded on with shots of people kissing, holding hands, getting married, and so forth. Descriptive syntagma, which is a segment of film that sets up a spatial relationship. Picture a shot of a room in a house, cut to a shot of the couch, another cut to a window near the couch. Uh, these shots set up a locale or setting. We may also consider these to be establishing shots in a more complex setup. Uh, alternative syntagma is an autonomous sequence that features a series of alternating shots that imply simultaneity. An example of this may be in a heist film where we see several different characters, each doing their part to pull off the heist. Uh, this is comparable to intercutting. Uh, the scene, properly speaking, is known to the earliest filmmakers. Metz tells us and is most closely related to a theatrical scene or real-life occurrence, uh, something equivalent to like a conversation taking place between characters. In the sequence proper, ordinary sequence is a sequence of events in the film which the viewer may not recognize as important and will dismiss. Uh, there is a sense of unorganized temporal discontinuity. Uh, the sequence proper episodic sequence is a sequence which is constructed and organized and has a definite uh, recognizable impact on the story. Now, I know that was a bit of work to get through, but it establishes our grammatical structure for film in much the same manner we establish paragraphs, clauses, and phrases for writing. So what Corinne does is break the traditional grammatical rules that we are used to and pulls the carpet out from under us. For the most part, Corinne ignores the autonomous shot instead opting to focus on parallel montage and the brackets and tagma. Much of Spring Breakers is delivered through montage editing of varying speeds or relations. The film opens with a bracket syntagma as Corin presents the cultural phenomenon that is Spring Break, which Dalton alluded to earlier as this horror film, per se. Spring Break. 
Spring Bright Forever. Showcasing a theme of men demeaning women for their pleasure from behind the camera and featuring a strong male gaze to ultimately uh, seeing men symbolically piss on a number of girls, as Alex alluded to. This is a thread that goes all of the way through Spring Breakers. Corinne ultimately ignores the descriptive syntagma uh, that Metz outlines because we find that much of St. Pete's doesn't make sense. We aren't really sure where anything is. We see a series of rooms, buildings, and streets that have no true relation to one another. Uh, the locales stand alone. This harkens back to Alice in Wonderland, a place in which things connect even in ways that make no sense. Spatial relation is thrown through the looking glass in both Carol's novel and Corinne's film. Corinne ultimately destroys the narrative of film when he begins to deconstruct the alternative syntagma that we are most familiar with. This is where intercutting uh, that we are normally familiar with is. This is what usually establishes and uh, constructs a coherent classical narrative in Hollywood film. Yeah, there are several moments where it's uh, things that uh, reactions to events that are happening happen before them, like the arrest scene. You see them in the car. You know, with the uh, police lights going before they actually get arrested in the film. Yeah, yeah, and the um, the bloody hand on the piano um, before he has to wrangle that bullet out of her arm, which I thought that was going to foreshadow that he was going to kill all of them. But <laughs> it was a very dark world analysis, St. Pete's. That's actually one of my favorite aspects of this film is that kind of elliptical and recursory way of uh, delivering the narrative. I kind of I think it's fabulous, honestly. As you have all alluded to, Corinne will show sequences of images, uh, somehow further the limited narrative of the film, while intercutting shots out of context. Uh, we see bright daylight, girls on the docks, sun shining, a dark, dimly lit street, and a girl wounded and crying, followed by characters laughing on the beach or in the pool. Uh, many of these shots are out of context, foreshadow, or preface soon-to-be sequences within the film. However, they make no sense in their preliminary appearances. Coran also repeats and echoes himself throughout the film, something similar to what you would see Godard doing in Made in USA. Uh, in which shots are often repeated, lines of dialogue and chunks of dialogue and shots and sequences uh, are on repeat throughout the film. <laughs> this causes a temporal upset and throws a wrench in the traditional narrative style that Hollywood is known for. This also ties into the final syntagma that Corinne is toying with, the ordinary sequence. These are all of those shots and movements that movie watchers dismiss as either irrelevant or unnecessary. Oftentimes they cause chaos and discontinuity within the film. Spring Breakers is full of seemingly irrelevant shots and sequences until you realize that every shot in Spring Breakers is building or leading or foreshadowing something else. If the figurative celluloid of film is the words on the page and the camera is the stilo, uh, which puts ink to paper, the camera work and composition is also very important to portraying the grammar of Spring Breakers. Uh, the opening syntagma is highly polished. It is the spring break we came to the theater to see. It is full of sun and bright color and beautiful women. It is the proverbial fantasy island. However, a disheartening sound effect takes us back into the real world. The film is now grainy and gritty. It is no longer polished, and it won't be again except in fantastical moments. The camera is portraying truth as it shows us that this wonderland that the girls go to is not as beautiful as the fantasy island that they dreamt about. It is darker, grittier, dirtier, and grimier than that fantasy. Corinne's work in Spring Breakers seeks to deconstruct the American dream in the films that glorify that dream. It is a dream full of unrealistic expectations that is hurt more in pursuit than it is saved. Corinne parlays what seems to be a simple fairy tale into a horrifying parable of youth and elaborate fantasy. In doing so, he shakes an uncomfortable truth from the minds of the viewer. He makes us realize that there is something more to life, but it can't be found on the beaches of Florida. 
what I want to say in terms of analysis with this film is um, what we have here, uh, and what, I want to say this also, happy Good Friday, dear listener, as uh, you are uh, listening to this, and uh, one of the hats that I happen to wear in my life is pointy, and uh, so I have remembered my collar for my analysis this week. Which is a rarity. And there is no better way to celebrate Good Friday or the Easter holiday than by watching the Harmony good. Corinne's Spring Breakers. Oh my god. Actually, that's precisely my analysis. You're so, absolutely whoa. right. It's a good Trash Friday cast. It is absolutely <laughs> the probably most spiritual film I've seen in the last four years. Spring Break. Uh, as far as releases go. I love this movie um, for its spiritual depth, and it is saying something very, very key uh, about spirituality, and is also saying something very, very key about uh, what you might call hedonism, debauchery, you know, or, or you know, that's a negative framing of Bacchanalia. It. Bacchanalia, yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's kind of tying those two things together in a way that I find very, very interesting. Uh, what, what, what's fascinating to me is, of course, Selena Gomez is going to youth group of some sort of Campus Crusade for Christ, you know, version of something. I, I don't know. And I don't, I don't like that youth pastor guy at all. You know, I am. But you're, you're blingy. Preacher shirt. With I the mean, cross. you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not jacked up on Jesus, and I'm never going to say that to somebody ever. That's dumb. Are you crazy for Jesus? Amen. Are you jacked up on Jesus? I am. But there is sort of, again, these sort of sociological, um, what we would call liminal groups in sociology, if you would stay with me, Mr. We Stewart. We would. Yes. Um, these sort of liminal, um, temporary sort of associations that people uh, create. And what Spring Breakers is about is church camp. So what, what, what it's about is, you know, there is something that needs to happen within uh, sort of human development and human sort of character formation in which you go into the liminal space where perhaps, you know, you might enter the wilderness and uh, you would uh, practice, you know, more faithfully in a more concentrated manner uh, various and sundry things. In, in the religious tradition, it would be Christianity or Buddhism or whatever, you know, and it's sort of, you know, Islam has the same sort of tradition where you'd go off in the wilderness and then you would practice very, very faithfully uh, in sort of an extreme, perhaps ascetic sort of way, uh, the religion. And then Bacchanalia, as Dalton used the term, and I think I, I'm going to stay with that for now, uh, is the same way. Spring break's great because you get a party hardy. And uh, you get to do the thing. The, the problem with that, and I think Harmony Corinne is really hitting the nail on the head as far as a spiritual issue. And this is where we rise up into fundamentalism, uh, where we rise up into sort of this dedication to the liminal space in a way that does not engage in the real world, which ends up being destructive for the lives of those around them, either in the religious sphere or in the hedonistic sphere. Uh, it, it, it is that you want to stay at spring break forever. You want to stay at church camp forever. You want to become this sort of scary version, fundamentalist version of either hedonism or of religion. Spring break. Now, Selena Gomez's character's arc, I think, kind of translates to this. And again, it sort of translates very well to the church camp experience. There's a great many students. I've taken students to church camp in my life. There are other people in this room who have been with students at church camp. I've gone to church camp. Been students at church camp. And there are students who are totally feeling it. And they're there for the week, and it's cool, and they're going to learn some things, they're going to take some things with them, they're going to sort of figure out life when they get back. And there are students who go, this is not for me, and I want to go home as quick as I can. Selena Gomez happens to be that character. And then there are characters who would say to themselves, I want to live at church camp forever. 
and they become malformed, disjointed, scary, scary human wreckage. I thought you were going to say they become camp counselors. Well, no, not necessarily, because <laughs> I've been a counselor. And, and, and I know, no, I, I just thought that's where you were going with that, and I realize now where you're going, but yeah. that was... That was the yes and that my brain did. Which is a which is a brilliant sort of parallelism of Matthew chapter 17, which you all know already, which is the account of the transfiguration of Jesus, in which Elijah and Moses also appear next to Christ. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we be here. Let us build us three tabernacles, one for yourself, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let us remain here. And Jesus says, what are you, stupid? That's a loose translation of the Greek, I know. But stay with me. Maybe one of my favorites, though. <laughs> and he says, we got to get off this mountain, because the world's down there. There, and that's sort of where this belongs, right? Uh, the problem with the uh, two sociopath girls is they want to stay there at the uh, at the mountain. They want to stay on the mountain. They want to stay in St. Petersburg, and they want to live this sort of life. And it's not a livable, sustainable sort of lifestyle. And what it turns them into is to monsters. And the juxtaposition of Selena Gomez and her faith and her name as Faith, and this sort of youth pastor stuff, also sort of begins to throw some shade on this behavior within Christian circles. Is What we want to do is we want to create church camp forever. We want to create these sociologically um, isolated bubbles in which we live. And by so doing, you know, we're really, really going to experience the presence of Jesus, or we're going to really, really experience the presence of party and fun, the hedonistic side. And they're monsters. They're scary people who who really, um, you know, deserve isolation— except for they keep interacting with the population in harmful ways. And that is super problematic. Uh, This film is all about excess because it is trying to preach moderation. What it is trying to declare to the listener, to the viewer, to the audience is that, yes, in fact, you should occasionally party. In fact, Jesus' first miracle was bartending. I'm just saying, but I move on. Um, And yes, indeed, you should occasionally practice religion, I think it seems to imply as well. But don't be a crazy person about it. Don't try to live on the mountain, because not only do you become useless to the rest of society around you. But the collective hangover will kill you. (laughs) For real, right? Um, you not only become useless to the rest of society, you actually become harmful because you're non-interactive. And, you know, I think again about Selena's sort of um, repeated soliloquy uh, about this, you know, everyone's so great, this place is so spiritual. And that's all sort of the, the wonderful thing. I think it's a spiritual experience to go on spring break. I also think it's a spiritual experience to go to church camp, YouTube conferences, and to eat bacon. I think all of those things are highly spiritual experiences. But to only eat bacon... To only go to U2 concerts, to live in St. Petersburg, or to try to live at church camp will make you a malformed human being. (laughs) But my point is, I think the sociological point is, isolationism within sort of your sociological niche Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, sort of affinity group Mm -hmm. is exactly what this film is about. And I think it's not only talking about hedonism and sort of showing the easy, yeah, by the way, if you live spring break forever, you would die. Right. You would be a serious drain on society. But I think the Selena Gomez character, again, going home early from church camp, mm-hmm. you know, because she just she's just she's not feeling it. Right. With this. And she's the one trying to feel it the most at the start. Which right. Is really great. Because she wants to. She yeah. wants to. She wants She wants to be game. You know, and I get that. But and the same thing. I've been to church camp a lot of times. I, I've seen this student. Right. And uh, the same thing can be said about the church camp student, though, who wants to live there. They become 
monsters or pastors, which is almost worse. And uh, that's what I said. I'm wearing a collar when I say it. Back up off me. <laughs> I love you so much. And uh, that is really, really problematic. And so I love this film because it is a prophetic Jeremiah word to uh, American evangelicalism to uh, hedonism to a lesser extent because it's sort of the surface reading, right? And it is really brilliant about sociological niche groups and isolationism. And I think I love this movie in crazy ways because of that. So as a result of that great analysis, we need to make a final verdict. Shell for trash? Else or instead? I ask you first, Ms. Alexandra Bohannon. Shelf for trash, shelf for instead, go. I definitely would shelf this film. I mean, it's for streaming on Amazon Prime. Um, I, I'm not a very big movie purchaser, but I think it is worth it if you have these um, inclinations to like these kind of movies. Caveat, if you don't, then don't buy this film. Um, I the only, Honestly, the only film that I could recommend, this would be the baddiest jubble feature ever um for an for an else would would be what i suggested earlier of mulholland drive just because they're two movies that have to be experienced they're full experience pieces um and you have to kind of watch them to fully understand them and then you're like chewing on them a few days afterwards and i think they have both important things to say about female sexuality Sure do. That's excellent. I love those picks very much. And we did a show on Mulholland Drive, so you should check that out as well. Yeah. Well, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say in terms of your shelf or trash and also your else or instead? I would say I would personally add this to my shelf, I think. But for our dear listener, I would say stream it uh, just because it is divisive and polarizing and uncomfortable. I would say this is definitely worth watching, though. Else, I would say Scarface for obvious reasons. Yeah. And then hearkening back to my analysis, I also say you read Lewis Carroll's Alice Through the Looking Glass and in Wonderland or whatever you want to call it, and watch Disney's classic version and not Tim Burton's, whatever you want to call it. Also, check out Jean-Luc Godard's Made in USA, and I think an interesting time will be had. Mr. Dalton Stewart is a shelfable. Ooh, I'm going to go with you, Arthur. I think this film is definitely essential. Um, but you know, I, I don't want spring breakers on repeat y'all. Oh, I <laughs> Ever. don't either. <laughs> Ever. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go with you and say it's very much a stream. Um, if you can't find it any other way, it's definitely worth throwing down the money for. Especially since you probably get it for $5. Yeah. I mean, you can, yeah, if you can find it cheap, it's you probably, probably pick it up. Um, so it's, I, I would say it's worth owning, but no. You don't have to own it. I think it's definitely essential viewing, though, especially if you're Totes. really in the film. I actually have two uh, other 2013 releases uh, that I'm going to recommend you pair with this film. The first being Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, yeah. That seems kind of obvious to me now. Yeah. yeah. Just all about excess, uh, specifically American excess, um, but through much more of an even more male lens than this because of my analysis um, about race. I'm going to recommend you check check out uh, Fruitvale Station, starring Michael B. Jordan, uh, which is a completely different film about being young in America. It's about being a young black man as opposed to being a young white woman. Um, and I love Fruitvale Station. I really do. I'd l I need to see it again. I've only seen it uh, the once when I, I saw it in theaters, but um, I like that movie a whole, whole lot, and I think it's a very interesting pairing. Um, you can also check out The Spectacular Now if you wanted a more serious look at teen drinking. Um, but um, in terms of another film about being a youth, uh, college-aged youth, 
I, I think Fruitvale Station is more valuable. Um, so that's that's what I'm going to recommend you pair with this film, and I think that would be a very interesting triple feature. Mr. Sells, we end with you. Shelf or trash? Else or instead? I'm definitely going to go ahead and say shelf. I think it's an important film. I think it's a high mark in, again, that sort of nebulous category that we call art cinema. And so I think it's very important for that reason. And um, my else's would echo some things that were said already. I think Drive is a great else uh, with this film. Uh, although I don't think Drive is quite a high watermark as far as art cinema goes um, regarding this film. I think it is a bit more plot driven, but it definitely has a high sort of, you know, flute and aesthetic working. And so I, I think it fits in the category in, in crazy, crazy ways. I'm also going to recommend uh, Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro in The Mission. Uh, because of uh, the reading I offered the film. And I think good times would be had by all um, with that sort of um, suggestion. All right, dear listener, we want to know your else's or instead we want to know your reactions to our analysis. And that can only happen via that magical means that we all know as social media. Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you know anything about social media by which uh, conversation might be held? Uh, actually, I do. We've got several means by which you can communicate with us. Uh, the first, you can email us, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash goodtrashgenrecast. And we actually have quite a bit of feedback coming in this week from all of the means of social media. Uh, Randall Bays says that he hasn't seen Jennifer's Body, but he's going to check it out in reference to us asking if anybody had thoughts on that movie. On favorite cinematic revolutionaries, Nick Sanford mentions Randall Patrick McMurphy, uh, Jack Nicholson from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, who I shouted out in that episode. Uh, on recent screenings, Caleb Masters says he just completed the low-key sci-fi thriller Predestination uh, for the second time. Ooh. Ooh, Caleb, text me and tell me what you thought. Well, I'll tell you right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's the Ethan Hawke one, Correct. right? Okay. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, it's seriously the greatest mind F movie he's ever seen since the likes of Shutter Island and Inception in 2010. He very highly recommends it for fans of sci-fi and cerebral thrillers. In response to analyzing V for Vendetta, Fran King says, thank you guys very much. Really looking forward to your analysis of the movie. This is one of my favorite films. You are the best. Uh, Fran, thanks for recommending that movie to us. We had fun on that show. We did. That was a good episode. And uh, just thanks for your support, buddy. Over on Google+, Plus, Patrice Fisher says that V was on cable, and he must have watched it three to four times again, uh, seeing it there. Um, and then we had some final hashtag you pick selections, uh, which will come in handy, I think, down the road as we try to incorporate that more and more uh, throughout the year uh, here and there. Uh, Todd Evans would like us to hit some westerns at some point. Uh, he says they always get I the agree, stick. Todd I agree, Todd Evans. I think there are some good trash westerns out there. We That's could something certainly we've been do. talking about for a while, actually. I love westerns. I think that would be Ditto. a good time. And then Ray, I may mispronounce your last name, Manessis, Manessis uh, suggests 1974's Billy Jack from writer-director star Tom Law. Laughlin. I'm familiar with that. That's the that's the it's basically Shaft, but he's Native American, right? Basically, yeah, yeah. It's fun times. Yeah, no, no. I'd like to see that. Um, Real Engine, by the way, which is R E E L Engine, mm-hmm. is a streaming documentary currently on Netflix, and Billy Jack is featured prominently okay. in that film. Okay, cool. Um, so we got some suggestions there. So thanks guys for that. Maybe we'll get to some of those things uh, this year. Uh, and thank you guys for all of your feedback. That's what I have this week for you. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, I'm guessing you might know something about another social media means by which a conversation could be held. Could you say anything about that? You know, some kids, some kids, they want to grow up and be president. Some kids want to grow up and be a doctor. You know, I just wanted to be an internet celebrity. They kicked me out of school, and I thought that was great. Shit, I don't want to go to your school. It's the best thing in the world. Some people, 
They want to do the right thing. I like posting to Twitter. Everyone's always telling me, yo, you got to change. I'm about stacking change, y'all. Stacking tweets. That's it. Followers, favorites, retweets. This is a dream, y'all. This is the American dream. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Genre Cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Any feedback coming in from that Twitsy Twitter, Mr. Dalton You know it, baby. Uh, (laughs) I love it when you call me baby. I know you do. Uh, Brigham Cole responded to our game of favorite revolutionaries on Twitter uh, with uh, one, Rutger Hauer's Roy Batty in Blade Runner, uh, albeit uh, it's a very personal revolution. Hashtag, what is human? Hashtag, that soliloquy. Pretty sure that's the first time that hashtag's ever been used. Uh, He also said Michael Douglas's Bill Foster in Falling Down. Uh, Interesting. Yes, please. Well played. Uh, A lost cause, um, but one he felt, uh, a fight that he felt he needed to fight, even though, you know, you're like, yeah, this guy, oh, no, he's a racist. It's completely <laughs> the wrong fight, but that's yeah. a good pick. It's a great pick, absolutely. Uh, and then uh, Shane Arrington replied to the podcast, and Brigham, if you could see what I've seen with your eyes. Caleb Masters informed us that X-Files has been uh, picked up for a six-episode season on Fox, uh, so it's not the only 90s classic cult hit getting a revival. More on TV revivals later in um, what's got us fired up about Bahala culture. Bream Colson, us, and specifically me a link, because uh, I always talk shit on anime, um, and said, I think you might actually enjoy this. It is a anime-stylized short film about a TIE fighter pilot, and it was awesome. I retweeted, I retweeted that link, because it was super cool. I, I liked it a lot. Uh, and that's really what we've got coming in the way of feedback this week from the Twizzy Twitter. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Of course, we would love to have your feedback at Stitcher, also at iTunes, and finally at Podbean, the actual hosting site at which our um, podcast is located, which is at goodtrashgenrecast.podbean.com. And so you can find us there, and you can, of course, share to your own Facebook. You can also share from there to Twitter and various other means of social media by which you might want to have your own conversations. And then, then we can participate from there. So thank you very much uh, for that, all dear co-hosts. Enough of this foolishness, y'all. It's time to play the game. Time. Time to play the game! <laughs> Therefore, this week's game is What Films Would You Have on Repeat? Scarface on Repeat, constant, y'all. Scarface on Repeat, dark tan and oil. What are your top three films? We're going to do a round table. We're going to give three, two, and one. That's right. Films you want to have on repeat. Brought to you by Spring Breakers. Spring Breakers. They put this on repeat for Prisoners of War. Well, Dalton Stewart, we'll start with you. Uh, what would be your number three pick for films on repeat? It's it's interesting. Every film on my list is a film we have an episode over. Interesting. Um, so keep that in mind that you can hear me talk about these films that I love more. Um, number three is 12 Angry Men. I could watch that all day because it's just so engaging and so interesting. Um, And when we were discussing doing this type of game, one of the caveats we gave was not necessarily always films that you just want to watch all the time, but films that really speak to you and move you. Um, And yeah, 12 Angry Men really speaks to me and moved me. 
Well, thank you very much, Dalton Stewart. Uh, Miss Alex Bohannon, what is your number three film on repeat? Okay, so we're gonna go from uh, we're gonna go from Dalton's Dalton's number three pick, a kind of a little bit of a higher class quote quote pick, to my pick, which is. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, but I don't care. It's still one of my favorite movies of all time. It's The Gamers 2, Darkness Rising. Darkness Rising? Uh, what? I have, in fact, <laughs> because this is listed as one of Alex's favorite movies on her letterbox. <laughs> say what? I have, in fact, seen part of this. It is a very low budget. Oh, it's so um, low budget. You are both on friend probation kick right started. now. I watched it because I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> So that's why I'm familiar with the, the gamers, gamers two. two colon the Dorkness Rising. Because I see there is a Gamers one produced by the. <laughs> I same, would hope so. By the same. I mean, it's not called the Gamers one. It's just called Though, the Gamers. Troll two is not related in any way to the first troll <laughs> that's film. True. That is true. true story. And, and actually, that's the same case here. It's only tangentially related and even more low budget. Like I swear, it was probably someone's like 2000 circa 2002 like movie. Uh, production class undergrad final or something like it's so low budget but it's pretty cool it's an interesting idea well thank you very much miss alexander bohan and mr arthur gordon what is your number three pick of films on repeat well my number three is a bit of a cheat because it's a tv show uh but it is arrested oh, we can cheat development uh which i have at times watched on repeat before because i think it's one of the greatest tv shows of all time and to be put on tv um but i think it's comedy done at its best i think the writing is phenomenal and can't be touched and so it would be going to my number three because it's near and dear to my heart and it is very special to me thank you very much um two of my three picks are also episodes and one of those is our number three which is steven spielberg's jaws i could watch that movie all day good pick every day all the days. It is literally a perfect film. I got that shark on repeat, y'all. That's right. I watched that poor, poor, out-of-town girl get eaten all the time, and it's fantastic. And so, yeah, love that movie. I mean, it's Jaws. Look at the episode. You'll know that, and it's fantastic. I love that movie very, very much. Let's move on to number two. Mr. Nolan Stewart, what do you say? Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Yeah. T2 is that good. Uh, I have said it before, and I will say it again. It is a perfect action movie. An absolutely perfect action movie. In fact, when I was young, I was watching this movie on repeat because it was on cable constantly in the mid-90s. From probably 1995 to 2002, you could not turn on cable on a weekend afternoon without at least one channel showing Terminator 2, colon, Judgment Day. I love this movie. Um, it's it's really it, it just moves me in a huge way. I mean... And again, we've done an episode over this film as well. I, I just adore this movie. And it's it's powerful um, in ways that are, are very surprising um, and speaks a lot to parental relationships, uh, camaraderie, uh, the way we build families. And I, I just think it's an invaluable action film. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what is your number two pick? Well, my pick is um, Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz. That is my favorite out of the Coronado trilogy. I think it is... I could, I could watch it in thirty minutes as soon whenever I go home or whenever I leave you people. Um, I could definitely go home and watch that immediately. Which I find Arthur Gordon is wearing his Cornetto trilogy T-shirt today, which I find 
wonderful and delightful. Uh, that movie is just so funny, appropriately paced. It's got a mystery. It's got action. It's got gore that makes me like shut my eyes kind of and like can see it a little bit. And, and it's just smart. It's a smart comedy. I love everything about British comedy. And I think probably this, why this movie is so cemented in my, um, top picks besides the fact that it has this amazing cast and all the other things that it really exemplifies what British comedy is. Um, it might be even a little more physical than most British comedy, but like all the British comedies that I grew up watching on TV, on PBS and movies and all of this, I think it's really just exemplified in this movie and kind of that's my whole relationship with uh, British comedy. God, I love that movie. Thank you very much. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what's your number two pick? Uh, my number two and number one are uh, both movies that are just near and dear to my heart, and they uh, I came to them at a time uh, when I first started getting into collecting movies and watching movies, and so they're both uh, very special to me, and the number two is more sentimental than anything, uh, but it is Robert Zemeckis' Forrest Gump, uh, which I love uh, nearly and dearly, and I used to be able to quote entire portions of the movie. film, entire acts of the film. And so I, I could put that on repeat. I could watch it anytime, day or night, uh, any day of the week, and have a fun time quoting Forced and repeating all of his lines and just having a good time with him and Bubba and Lieutenant Dan. But not Jenny. Not Jenny. Not Jenny. Good to know. My, my number two pick is Ghostbusters. Because good pick. It's Ghostbusters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I literally could quote every line with the movie as it plays. Yep. Every single line. And it's a film that I put on when I write. And it's a film when I put on when I'm doing anything else. And I sort of want to pay attention, but I don't have to. Yeah. Yep. And it's, it, it's, it's absolutely perfect. The Princess Bride sort of falls in that same sort of category for me a little yeah. bit. And it's just one of those movies that I just know every beat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yep. yeah, Ghostbusters is definitely my number two pick. Well, let's move on to number one, our number favorite one. films to have on repeat. I wonder if Scarface is going to show up. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? I'll tell you, what is a good movie to have on repeat? The Matrix. Uh, so, yeah, I know my top one and top two are uh, sci-fi action films, but I have a wheelhouse and get out of my face about it, dick. That's fair. Um, the Matrix is a beautiful movie. And much like Ghostbusters... I can pretty much quote the whole movie. Lieutenant, your men are already dead. From the beginning, like as soon as it starts. I love that movie so much. Uh, and again, it's it's sentimental. You know, it's one of the very first movies. Um, it's not one of the first movies I remember seeing in theaters, uh, but it's one of the crispest mo- memories of seeing a film in theaters that I have from early on. I mean, I remember seeing The Lion King in theaters and... Um, other films from, you know, when being very young, you know, four, five, six, seven. Um, but I vividly remember seeing The Matrix. I remember that I kept turning around looking at the projection booth because I'd never noticed the projection booth before for some reason. And I was just kind of fascinated by it. I remember everything about that experience of seeing The Matrix in theaters. Um, and I think there is no greater message than there is no spoon. It's all you, man. You can do it. You can change it. And also, some badass kung fu. Well done. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what's your number one film to have on repeat? Whoa! <laughs> um, I was going to pick a miniseries for this pick, but then I'm just like, eh, I don't know. Um, I'm actually, I think I'm pretty sure about this. One movie that I definitely had on repeat as a child was what you said earlier, The Princess Bride. Boom. That movie is just 
funny and beautiful and touching. I mean, going into the um, the grandfather's commentary, you know, it's got, you know, adventure, true love, revenge, you know, all of that. It has everything you ever want in a film. And um, after reading Carrie Elwes's, uh biography on just his section of The Princess Bride, just that little part of his life, um, I'm in love with that movie even more. I could go and watch it right now if I wanted to and be able to quote along with everybody. Um, It's just so smart. It's such a smart, wonderful movie. And it really, it really, uh, I think it was one of the first DVDs we ever owned as a family. So it just, it exemplifies also all of the, um, the, all the Disney princess movies that I really loved growing up. And um, I, like I wore out my little mermaid tape and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Cause you should. Yeah. So good. It's a good movie. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, that's my number one princess bride. So good. I like it very much. Thank you very much for that pick. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what's your pick for number one film you'd like to have on repeat? Uh, the number one film I would have on repeat a friend. Let me borrow it. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, and I fell in love with that movie and watched it almost every day for a very long time. And it is Tombstone. Oh, I love that movie. Good pick. Which Good is pick. has everything you want in a film. It has action and romance and comedy and great characters and great acting and memorable lines. And it is just and wonderful. Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer and Val fucking Kilmer. So that is what I would have at number one uh, because I think it is just one of the greatest movies ever and it is a lot of fun so well thank you very much i have a three-way tie at number one i'm gonna go very very fast because i mean i literally watched no i literally watched them just as much if it's not part of a series i'm gonna be so angry it's not part of a series <sighs> so akira kurosawa's ran which is a, his adaptation of king lear mm-hmm. in samurai movies mm-hmm. that's that's one of them another one is um john houston's maltese falcon starring mm-hmm. humphrey bogart i watch that movie all the time because it's amazing mm-hmm. and then finally Martin Scorsese's The Departed, starring Leonardo oh, DiCaprio. Yeah. I can watch that movie all day, every day, all the days. It was when I was in Minneapolis this last week. It was on FX. I totally turned it on halfway through the middle of the movie. I did not leave my room until it finished. It's just, it's it's fantastic. But I have to give a three-way tie because literally I watch those three movies all the time. So, moving on because I don't want to waste all the time. We need to play uh, the last thing that we play in this show, which is what's got us fired up this week in pop culture. Dalton, are you fired up this week? I am. So, um, like a day ago, if even that, I think it might have been just last night, the first teaser trailer for Spectre, starring 007, has been released, and um, very action-light trailer, and I kind of like that about it. It is beautiful. It's, it's one of the things I'm fired up about this weekend. <laughs> I was yeah. in love with it. I am it's excited. A good teaser trailer. Yeah, it is. They do some really fun stuff with the James Bond score throughout yeah. that. It's a yeah, really I nice motif. I actually need to watch it again. Um, because I, I want to watch it again. And we get to hear and see the silhouette of the villain, Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz. Who I think is playing British in this. He had his accent, I don't know. He, it, it was turned down a little bit. The other thing I'm excited about this week um, is I have started watching HBO's The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. So Robert Durst um, is the son of Seymour Durst, who was a huge real estate magnate in New York. So in the 19th, 1980s, I want to say 1981, maybe 82, Robert Durst's wife, Kathleen, went missing. Her body has never been found. 
Uh, and Robert Durst has been a suspect in that crime since then. Then, Robert Durst's best friend was murdered in Los Angeles. He was connected to that crime as well. Then, in 2002, he was actually charged of murdering and dismembering a man in Galveston, Texas. Robert Durst has never gone to jail. This is a weird turn. Robert Durst contacted Andrew Jarecki after he saw All Good Things and said, I really liked your movie. Um, I think you and I should do an interview together. So over eight years and almost 20 hours of interviews, Andrew Jarecki interviewed Robert Durst, and then they put it together a six-part uh, a six-part miniseries uh, documentary for HBO. Mild spoiler alert: between episodes five and six airing, and this show just finished airing uh, like two or three weeks ago, Robert Durst was arrested for murder. There are a lot of interesting think pieces about how this is not a good documentary, how it's a compelling piece of nonfiction, but how slash why it's not a good documentary series. Um, I think you should read those too. To keep that in mind, because this very is crazy. The story is fascinating, right? That's yeah. what drew me to it. I was like, "Oh my god, tell me more." The best way I can describe it is it's serial NPR serial meets True Detective. So that is really what I'm most fired up about this week, and that's pretty much what I've been doing the last couple of days. I'm going to check that out. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, are you fired up this week? Oh well, Dalton and I have already talked about one of those, the Spectre teaser trailer, which I echo is just. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I had a good trash, good time this week, and I watched the first four Saw films, which are all now streaming on Netflix, uh, which is a good time to be had uh, if you enter those sorts of movies. The first Saw film is incredible. It's a very good thriller. It's a very good mystery, and it's uh, made before that whole torture porn thing becomes a thing in the series, and so it stands alone by itself as a really, really... Good film from a first-time James Wan making a full-length feature film. And so definitely check that out. And then watch all four if you want to have a horror marathon because it's it's fun to be had. What about five, six, and seven? They're not streaming, so I didn't really worry about them. And not worth your time. One of them I remember liking, but I don't remember which one. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, I hope to hear that you are fired up also this week. I am fired up. Um, Arthur talked about last episode about WrestleMania. I'm going to watch WrestleMania with my friends this weekend. I'm excited about that and excited to get caught up on NXT because I'm one behind. Um, You have friends other than us? Yes. Hollet! I know. You're um, cheating on us. That's right. Um, and I also am in the midst of watching for the first time 30 Rock. I missed the boat. It's so good, right? It, it is good. It's I missed the boat on watching it when it was on TV, and um, now it's all on Netflix, and so I just realized how much I loved it. I think I actually started watching it because everyone – uh, wouldn't shut up about the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So I was just like, oh, that is that is a good show, but I also want to watch 30 Rock, and now 30 Rock is taking priority. Um, so uh, that. Oh, there's also this really great initiative that I'm fired up about. It is called, um, it's 20 on 20, or now I don't know. Women on 20s, sorry. Um, it's the initiative of trying to get a woman to replace Andrew Jackson on the $28 bill. I've seen um, this. I to, love this. Yeah, this is because... Yeah, because Andrew Jackson was a dick. Yeah, he was a pretty... We don't like him. He was a pretty bad guy. Um, 
So um, then, so there's a group of individuals trying to get um, to petition Barack Obama to get a woman on the twenty dollar bill in in honor of the anniversary of suffrage. Eleanor Roosevelt, um, Susan B. Anthony. Yeah, those people are on this short list. Well, Susan B. is already on a coin. Yeah, so but I want Eleanor Roosevelt. Nobody carries well, coins so anymore. This, uh, short list. So I've the got way a dollar coin work, in my pocket right now. Um, of course you do, old man. All right, Alex, tell us more about the Women on the 20 initiative. Yes. Okay, so you go to the website, um, which I don't have pulled up, but I'm sure we'll put in the show notes, and you just go there and you can see the list of women that they're proposing to put on the 20 after they sign a a petition to Barack Obama because he – there's no um, legislative – requirement for this one he can just tell the federal treasury if he gets enough signatures hey put this person on the put whoever you want on the money it's just people don't do it so um he there's a list of women that include um women of color like rosa parks and uh harriet tubman um oh yeah rosa parks for the win yeah there's um wilma Mankiller's also on this list include yeah i know it's pretty cool and then you have eleanor roosevelt susan b anthony pat Patsy Mink. There's it's a quite a long uh, list of women that you can vote for. So you I'll vote end up being Betsy Ross because she was a seamstress, you know, and then I'll be sad, kind of. So besides that initiative and the fact that I'm reading a Telltale memoir about Guantanamo, that's the only thing I've fired up this week. Okay, I'm only fired up about a couple things um, this week in pop culture. One of those things is CBS has recently leaked that they are looking into buying a new Star Trek series. Wow. It's kind of a big deal, yeah. What? And it's called Federation. It's going to be several hundred years ahead of, say, the events of Deep Space Nine slash Voyager. So that that was the last timeline, though. So it was here... And it's going to be in the future from that. So say, okay. you know, the, the Klingons are no longer, like, warlike. They're like these warrior mystics, etc., yeah. etc., and so I'm very excited to hear that, especially if they're really going to stay on the Klingon thing. And so I really, really hope that happens because not so much because of my love for Star Trek, because of my love of other things. So whatever that means. Also, this is a shout out section of the show. I performed a wedding this last weekend and uh, my best friend and uh, roommate from college, Jason Leah, I wish you all the best and I hope everything goes so well for both of you. And I was able to be in and perform his wedding. And in said wedding, we were given um, sort of a groomsman. And I was included amongst the groomsmen, even though I was the officiant. Because usually the officiant sort of the hired hand. But because officiant's also best friend, it's kind of nice. And uh, we were all given superhero t-shirts and flasks. All of us. So Jason, the groom, wore a Batman shirt. Um, others wore Flash and Green um, Lantern and Aquaman, etc. Superman, DC character shirts. Who are you? I was the Green Arrow for Ooh. obvious political reasons. And I have a Green Arrow t-shirt and flask. And I have also picked up the Green Arrow and Green Lantern issues of DC Comics from oh, cool. the 70s. The very famous uh, team-up that they did. Team-up that they did. And My Ward Speedy? A junkie? This is, the, this is the place at which I'm a fired up in pop culture in which you can also consume. Because you can't have my t-shirt, you can't have my flask. But you can also have the 70s run of uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow. And I gotta say, it's awesome. 
it's really fantastic. I'm also simultaneously rewatching uh, the the CW series Arrow. It is so good. It's so good. It's ridiculous how good it is. And I love it tonsies. And that's all I want to say. And I'm really, really fired up this week in pop culture. Next week's film we want to tell you, dear listener, as we continue on this, is uh, a, a little Guy Ritchie film you may have heard of, you may not have heard of, called Snatch. Hey, hey. But that's going to be next week's film. Um, dear listener, we want you to know something. When you watch movies... It is far more than 90 minutes and popcorn, in the case of Spring Breakers, lots of boobs. It is more than that by far. It is about a conversation about how society works, how culture works, and we want you to have that conversation. What we do with this show is we try to give you the tools to have said conversation because it makes life more livable, more meaningful, and more satisfactory. So we pray and hope that you do that all. Have a great Easter weekend, and uh, we'll see you next time as you check out the film Snatch. We'll see you next time. Spring me